Good morning and welcome to our Royal College podcast today on well-being. Today is a discussion with Dame Claire Gerarda and Sir Professor Simon Wesley. So welcome today. Morning. Hi. As a as a an introduction, I'd just like to say that I this household is incredible. Um, which household has a dame, a sir, professors, and um, two heads of their respective royal colleges? And a dog. And a dog. And a dog. I saw and the dog. And continent blind, deaf dog. Yeah. <laughs> well, that. you know, we have our crosses to bear. I would also like to say that it's astounding that somehow you managed still to be academics, authors of many, um, many journal articles and other articles and active members of national governing bodies. And still, despite that, you have time to care for patients and for colleagues. And I'd like to thank you for coming here today. Thank you, Susan. And I'd like to thank you and the all the work that anaesthetists have been doing during this difficult time, because I know that many of them have actually been putting not just their physical health at risk, but also their psychological health. So thank you so much. And um, thank you, Simon, as well. It has been a really difficult year for all in the health service. And um, anaesthetists have borne a large, a large degree of the load. So Claire, in um, in your role at Practitioner Health, have you noticed that um, there has been a large increase in the number of doctors who've come specifically uh, for my purposes, anaesthetists, but generally as uh, for the medical profession as a whole? Thank you, Susan. And as you know, I run service for doctors and dentists with mental health and addiction problems. And just to put things in perspective, in the first 10 years of the service, we saw about 5,000 doctors predominantly. In the pandemic year last year, we saw 5,000 doctors. Now, the baseline changed slightly, but only just slightly. So we saw as many doctors and dentists in the last year that we saw in the first 10 years. So it's staggering. And most of those, 87% of those, are presenting with severe anxiety. And I know we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, I, I, I worry sometimes that that is a little bit like burnout, a sort of more acceptable label to give someone who actually has a mental illness such as anxiety or depression. With respect to anaesthetists, whilst every single specialty has increased, anaesthetists actually have not increased as much as some of the other specialties. And I think that's because if you think about it, a lot of help has been provided to anaesthetists and intensive care doctors. So they were one of the first groups to have debriefing sessions, to have uh, people sort of doing what we always wanted to do, which is proper teamwork, uh, people asking how they were, even very practical things like hot food, day and night, places to rest their head in the middle of a shift if they had some time off, or at the end of the shift. So. Whilst anaesthetists have increased in real numbers, in actual proportion compared to the other groups, we haven't seen as big an increase. Thank you. That's really interesting that um, that degree of support is has been so valuable. And certainly, um, I was going to ask a question about teams because I think teams play such an important role in supporting people. And our teams have changed, um, certainly, for the intensivists, they've had to incorporate other members of the teams, which has, um, in the first 
pandemic was quite difficult, but by the second, people were more in the swing of things and were more accepted and part and knew what to do. There's been a lot of um, slogans and campaigns going on. Simon, do you do you find that um, those kind of campaigns in with respect to your military um, research have made any difference in helping people present? Um, it's very difficult to put any one campaign down to any one result. I mean, it's been just a change in culture. Certainly, we've seen a gradual increase in the number of people in the armed forces willing to present with mental health problems. Um, it's not such a huge problem there as you might think, actually, but it is a problem. And that's been steadily increasing over 20 years. Likewise, some of the barriers such as stigma have been steadily decreasing over 20 years. I wouldn't say it's all due to one campaign or, or anything like that. I don't think uh, we've ever had anything so successful as the kind of COVID messaging this time last year. It's probably the most effective public health campaign ever. Um, but it's just a change in attitudes and particularly among younger generation um, where now most of them think the most important mission of the, of the NHS is actually mental health. I'm not sure I agree with that actually, but it's still a very important mission. Uh, and that's in the younger generation who certainly regard this as a far greater priority than our generation ever did. That's really interesting uh, because I was going to uh, talk about generations and 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 try and think about the stresses for different generations because um, one of the questions that seems to come up quite often is how do we support if if the younger generation as a whole are uh, more cognizant of mental health and mental health problems how do we support them um, from a from an oldies perspective. <laughs> Well, the first thing to say is I'm not sure that we do. Uh, most support comes from your peers. And um, there's nothing worse than someone of my age, I wouldn't include you two in this, uh, standing up and showing a PowerPoint to a group of, of young people who don't communicate in that way anyway, uh, and telling stories of how it was in my day. There's nothing worse to put people off than, than that kind of way of communicating. Um, so they're really important. M most people get their information from their peers. Uh, on on these issues and it's it's what goes on there that is much more important than what we do. Our generation can help because our generation creates the environment which actually uh, is if you like is is mental health ogenic it creates the the mental health uh, problems that we're seeing amongst the younger generation and with each, with the best will in the world, we do it because we think it's better for their training, we think it's better for patient quality, patient safety, but actually what we do is we put in place more and more burdens for them, which we didn't have. So, for example, when I qualified, we didn't have this enormous inspection regime, we didn't have appraisal, we didn't have revalidation, we didn't have Datix, we didn't have all the processes that, that young people have to pass through now. And so I say to every sort of person in their 40s, I say, you are the leaders now. Well, when you start to put in with well-meaning policies and practices that you think the younger generation need, why don't you think to yourself, how would this have affected my ability to practice safely, my ability to practice without feeling uh, that I was constantly being watched like that sort of a, a panopticon? Why is it that uh, that we need all of this? Now, of course, we do need some, 
but actually our generation has created the environment which I think is, is leading to a lot of mental illness that we're seeing amongst the younger generation. And although we're trying to do good, we may not be achieving what we need. I think that's certainly true. Um, huge amounts of interventions that we that are done try to do good. Psychological debriefing, which was a vogue 20, 30 years ago, still in some circumstances is the kind of immediate counselling after traumatic events was done with the greatest of good intentions, but we now know clearly it actually makes you worse. And the same, the same with compulsory resilience training, which is creeping in. Uh, it, it, it's it, we know, uh, for example, with mindfulness, a, a fantastic uh, study which actually did randomise students to mindfulness and non-mindfulness, and it found that actually it made it worse because if you force people to have what in essence is a psychological intervention, those that don't want that or aren't ready or might find other ways of, of reducing their psychological stress, they might, like I do, watch back-to-back -back episodes of Come Dying With Me. So if I'm made to do mindfulness and suck on a raisin, it will make me worse. And so I think we've got to be really careful that whilst we think we might be doing good, we've got to prove that we're doing good because actually I, I, I worry that we, we, we think we're doing good and it's our guilt trip that we must help in, in some way. Do you, um, so I mean, you've, you've written an excellent book, Claire, um, and you mentioned resilience. Would you like to talk about your book, please? Yeah, the book is called Beneath the White Coat, Doctors, Their Minds and Mental Health, and all proceeds go to my charity, Doctors in Distress. Really, I wanted to understand why, when you have a group of people, high intelligence, lots of positive factors, we tend to have good social networks, we're certainly educated beyond uh, uh, A-levels, we, we, we tend to have a high paid job. Why is it that doctors have such high rates of mental illness and, and also in particular female doctors higher rates of suicide than many of their age match peers? And having run my sick doctor service for 14 years, I really wanted to try and understand not just some of the structural problems like actually physically making an appointment, but the, the unconscious reasons. What is it about our tribe, our group of belonging that creates those rules and customs that mean we cannot admit our vulnerability, we cannot put our hand up and or we can't cross over the threshold from, from practitioner to patient. So please buy the book. It's it's something that, that actually, it's a very personal book. It's the chapters I've written are in the first person. And I do try and really get underneath, uh, lift the lid off up and to say, well, what is going on? Why do doctors uh, become unwell? And there's also some chapters there, as you say, on resilience. There's a chapter on autism, a chapter on bipolar disorder in doctors. And then finally, for some anaesthetists and other doctors listening to this, the last three chapters are there to say what happens when something goes wrong? What if you get a referral to the regulator or a complaint? How can you maximise your chances of getting a good outcome? Yeah, it's 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 a book that should have been written ages ago, and it certainly highlights um, aspects that we all know are true. You know, for instance, the doctor mask, you know, absolutely. I mean, we all have that mask. And in some ways, I was going to talk about, um, you know, the research in, in SARS looking at um, at who presented. And it was the people with the lower education. And I, I sort of mistakenly thought, well, education is protective. But having read that book, that it, it doesn't necessarily mean it is the case. 
Well, certainly not as we're, we're, I mean, we know that perfectionism has increased dramatically in, 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 in the younger generation, not just doctors. And this has been a fabulous longitudinal study looking at using a standardized measure of perfectionism and has shown how this has increased and how it's linked to, for example, anorexia nervosa, depression, anxiety. And of course, doctors are chosen from a pool of young people who have the most perfectionist traits. And there isn't actually anything, there's nothing good about perfectionism. It, it, it predisposes you to mental illness. It, it means that and in, in our profession, people will stay longer and longer and longer thinking the job's never done. They find it impossible to hand over a task. They're fretting all the time. And and it it really is a problem that that is a sort of self-fulfilling because we all want a perfectionist doctor in the system because they cover our backs. So the system allows them to be perfectionist. They themselves feel they must be perfectionist. So we have this, this perfect storm uh, that, that actually creates a lot of mental distress amongst the, this generation. I was not at all perfect. I mean, by all, any means, you know, I was, and my, our generation, I suspect Simon wasn't, you, know, you weren't expected to be, you expected to be good enough. That doesn't mean bad, that means good enough. Uh, but now there is this flawless uh, expectation to be flawless that is internalized as well as external. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, what are your views on that? I'm not completely convinced, only just because historically every generation always thinks that the, the, uh, the, the, the next generation, the younger generation, are worse. Uh, it's just the normal trope that we always have. And so I'm not entirely sure I buy, buy that. And there's quite a lot to be said for perfectionism. There's nothing to be said for perfectionism. Well, there is an opposite sport, for sure. Uh, I think perfectionism drives anxiety. I mean, there's no, we're not talking about people being sloppy. Right. One, of the, one of the treatments we give our doctors is to ask them to write a letter with a few errors in it. And you'd be thinking that, you know, we're asking somebody to do something catastrophic. And it, it's very different. I'm not, by the way, advocating that people don't do their best for their patients. This isn't the same. This is an unhealthy desire that there is no end to their work because, of course, it can never be perfect. Absolutely. There's nothing is nothing can be perfect. And so I mean, it's not that I think this generation are worse. I think actually this generation are far nicer, far kinder, far better trained than our generation. I just think we put too much expectation on them, which we didn't have in our generation. Hmm. <laughs> Shall we move on? This is obviously this is obviously a topic of debate. <laughs> this is the first time we've talked about mental illness. What, to each other, I mean, for years. That's right. Yeah. Well, certainly since this morning. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I I always laugh because I think that in your house, do you have any mundane conversations like who's putting the bin out? <laughs> oh, definitely. No, because I do me. it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> We've been married 33 years. We've we've got into a groove of who puts the bin out. I do. Oh, Simon, okay. dishwasher. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Simon, so I, I believe that you've been um, looking into long-term effects of COVID. Sadly, in the last year, we've lost many people and we've lost many um, health professionals. And many have also suffered from the disease. Uh, what um, What... What particular areas have you been looking at? Yeah, that's a, I'm actually, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm also an epidemiologist. And about the few uh, good things about the pandemic is you no longer have to explain what epidemiology is to everybody. But, uh, but if you took, first of all, the psychiatric perspective, and one of, one, one of the burdens that COVID is going to leave us is uh, it's not so much the numbers of, of deaths, but the way 
that it's happened. And we will see an awful lot of people with what we call complex bereavements who, you know, who had had to experience a grimness of death that was not present before. You know, I know plenty of colleagues who had to sit in an awful hospital car park uh, on a cold night watching uh, someone pass away on an iPad. And now that's really interfered with the post process of grief. And if we ever go into this situation again, I can't believe that we can't do that better. Um, so that that's been, you know, that's been a big issue. Then we come to two other things to talk on from the epi point of view. The first is to remember that our mental health in the in the health service wasn't great before all this happened. We shouldn't go around with rose tinted spectacles about the past, which may be what I was just mentioning just now. But we, we shouldn't imagine up until whenever it was March the 1st last year, everybody was happy, optimistic, well supported, etc. In fact, it was the exact opposite. Um, the NHS had pretty poor rates of sickness, absence, of mental health problems, etc. Now, COVID has obviously made that much, much worse. But let, let's not pretend it was great beforehand and the issues that was causing that have not gone away. Uh, they've been exacerbated. Second thing is that that's a population change. So everyone, the mental health of the nation has got worse, particularly among young people and an awful lot of people in the health service are quite young. Has it got particularly worse for those in the NHS? Actually, that's a slightly moot point. We're not quite sure on that. Um, some asked us, a couple of studies we've done suggest not. Uh, a couple of studies suggest it is. Uh, and so that one's slightly um, unclear. What we do know is that at the moment, everyone is certainly, not everyone, a lot of people, perhaps a majority, are feeling exhausted, unhappy, uh, stressed, poor sleep, overworked, etc. Now, I think we'd all agree that that's not a mental disorder and doesn't necessarily require treatment by extremely expensive people like me or slightly cheaper people uh, like in, in mental health are not quite as expensive as we are. But it, it's not something we should regard as pathological. And we have lots of studies, including from your profession and from intensivists in general, suggesting very, very high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but I think these need to be treated with a little bit of caution because this is the boring boffin speaking now. They're all based on questionnaires and questionnaires always overdiagnose disorders. That's just a general rule. And when we get to interview people, which we are now doing, so we, we've done a big study called NHS Check, 30,000 people in it. We find high rates of PTSD. But when we interview them, it's not quite as bad as it looks. And a lot of people, as I say, are closer to fed upness. We're here we go again. Um, and indeed, close to the burnout, uh, as Claire was saying, which isn't actually a psychiatric disorder. And I think we'll find that the rates of formal disorder, which might require professional help, are lower than we currently think they are. That's really encouraging. How, how do we progress going forward then? I, I suppose. Um, if it's true that, that um, a lot of the distress is probably reasonably short term, and the best thing we can do is end the pandemic, by the way, that's easily and far away the best thing we can do for the population's mental health, health of children and everything. It would suggest that, as I say, over-professionalisation is as dangerous as under-professionalisation. And the second thing we would definitely say, based on all the work we've done over 30 years with the armed forces, is the most important person around you is certainly not me, certainly not a counsellor, certainly not the chief exec or Simon Stevens. It's the next person you report to. 
no matter who you are or where you are. And they have the most influence on your well-being and, and mental health and uh, where they're good, where they know how to, you know, deal with people, where they are seen as interested, where they can do active listening and all the simple things that normal people think they can do but often can't. But all of that, that is far and away the most important thing, which is the support of your peers and your immediate supervisor. Not people like Claire, not people like you, not people like me. And so um, I mean, Neil Grubo talks about the psychologically savvy conversation. Is that what you're talking about? Neil <clears throat> and I have worked for a generation now, actually. But yes, uh, you can put it all sorts of ways, but it's just doing sensible things, being aware of what's happening, being nice to people. When they come to talk to you, actually listen. Everyone thinks they listen, but when you actually watch videos of interactions between uh, different levels of professionals, you find that they don't. Um, and being very, very clever uh, and being very good at your job does not mean in any way that you know how to listen to a junior when they're upset. Um, being able to manage being upset. And so the interventions that are very successful are those that don't give you knowledge. So mental health first aid is very popular. It improves your knowledge, but it doesn't actually make any difference to the people who work for you. But interventions that involve things like role playing. How do you deal with a member of staff who's crying? People find that very difficult, even worse. What about if your junior says they've been thinking of harming themselves? You panic, you know, you, and, and you don't, you know, you behave very differently. And if you, you know, if you can give people incredibly simple skills to deal with these kind of things, that makes a big difference to the general well-being of your team. And as you said at the start, we work and live in teams. And it's predicated, of course, on having time. So what, uh... What I think the pandemic has done is in certain groups, certainly not in others, in my own profession, general practice, we have far less time, but certainly in those, and I would say intensivists, I know they've been very, very busy, but there's also been time created for people to come together and actually talk about what they've been through. Now, maybe they'll talk about how awful it was. It may actually be how exciting it was. And what Simon's talking about is absolutely predicated on time. If people don't intend to be cruel to each other, but if you are having to rush around, you have no time, you really, somebody weeping on you or somebody showing distress, you have no time to stand and stare and listen to them, then you might say, look, go to occupational health, go off sick, which is the worst possible uh, intervention. And just anecdotally, one of my teams, I run a gambling team and, and it's fabulous, our fabulous mental health nurse now, and it's not because she's mental health, but every every meeting we meet once a week goes around. The first thing she asks is, let's go around and ask, how are we all? And at first I poo-pooed this. I thought, oh, come on. It's one of the loveliest spaces in, in the day because you just do say, well, actually, I had a really bad day yesterday because I got a complaint. Now, you don't solve it there, but... The very fact that, and we've got the time, that's why we can do this. That's why we can go around, seven of us, some very brief, some slightly longer. But if you don't build in time and space, then I'm afraid the whole system will, will, will become a cruel system rather than one that's compassionate. Yeah, and also COVID has of itself made all this worse by it, um, breaking up our social networks. Uh, or at least the way that we manage COVID breaks up our social networks. So we no longer, we're not even allowed to kind of congregate together. I mean, I know we do do it because I've watched videos of us doing it, but we're not even supposed to all, you know, get together and have a 
quick hug and a coffee straight at the end of a shift. Uh, we certainly, until now, couldn't go out for an after work drink and all that kind of stuff. All the natural social networks that we use to de deal with adversity, which are incredibly successful for most people most of the time, have been impeded um, by, by the pandemic. And that's why it is such a, a wicked thing. That's why it has a more profound effect on mental health than uh, acts of terrorism, war, flood, disaster. Pandemic always ranks higher because none of those do that, only pandemics. Yeah, I mean, it has, has had a shocking effect on people's ability to to provide to, to seek out that kind of support. Yes, yeah. Um, Claire, you mentioned about um, people going off sick um, and how that is so damaging. Yes. Uh, what is your experience? What What's best for individuals who are suffering? It's a very complex question, but I I believe this, it's too easy, it's too easy a mechanism to tell someone who, for example, has burnout or has anxiety, say, well, go off sick, go off sick for two weeks. Now, it may be the right intervention, but what's done is the moment there's a, a smidgen of distress shown by somebody, even if, for example, somebody's tired and starts to cry, go off sick. So we're immediately medicalizing something. But what we're also doing and what I've begun to notice is that the most distress, and I run a group for those following suicide of a doctor, and what I've found paradoxically is that these doctors have killed themselves when they're not working. So, for example, if they've been suspended or if they've been asked to go on sick leave, and I've tried to make sense of this, and I can actually only make sense of it by saying work gives doctor meaning. It gives us meaning and purpose. It really does. It's not. I'm not talking about a religious vocation, but it gives us purpose. And if you ask somebody who's already very stressed and, and verging on a mental illness to go away, you have then removed the meaning and purpose to their life. And I think we've got to be very mindful and people in, in authority have to be very, very mindful that if they send somebody who is teetering on this you know, high anxiety, say off sick, where they then have nothing, you might actually be making things a lot worse for them and it might tip them into, into suicide or into severe mental illness. It doesn't mean you have to keep somebody at work full time. It may mean readjusting their work. It may mean making reasonable adjustments. It may mean saying, look, you know, have a few days, come back and let's work part time. Let's see how we're going to do things for the next few weeks. But I think this I've seen this so many times that I'm actually now beginning to say doctors stay at work anyway, because that's how we're made. We have presenteeism, not absenteeism. So to remove that and to think we're doing good, I think is is something we need to start examining and saying it might be better for that person actually to stay in the workplace on lesser duties whilst we then can put some intervention in. And they may need to go off on sick leave after that, but actually let's not yeah. use this as a knee-jerk response. Do you agree, Simon? Yeah, I mean, we used to, when I started, when there was a traumatic incident on a ward, in a psychiatric ward, it would often be a suicide of a patient or a very violent incident. To allow the staff, or put the staff who'd been involved, give them two weeks automatic leave. That was about the worst thing we could possibly do, and we don't do that now. And in particular, if we had no knowledge at all of what that person's background, if they were living on their own in a horrible flat somewhere, um, you know, and particularly now in the pandemic, it's the, almost the worst thing you could do. At least when they're at work, there is some form of human interaction and, and sociability and support. So you, you, I think you, you mustn't have a, a standard policy 
of um, you know sending people home um, uh, because because you you saw them looking distressed in the corner. That's not that's not the best reaction. And switching back to Neil and I's work with the military is the equivalent of when people are sent back from deployment uh, because they've had a some form of mental health incident or problem. That we know is the worst thing we can do, and we know absolutely for certain that they will be they will have le left the military, lost their job um, within six to twelve months. So you keep them as far as you can with the unit. Um, the only issue there, which is not relevant in the medicine, is the issue of firearms. But if there's no firearm issue, then you keep them with the unit, even if they're not doing anything. Um, you still keep them there, and that's absolute doctrine, uh, and for very very good reasons. And it's and sometimes the whole COVID thing has been a bit like a deployment, mm -hmm. except it didn't end at six months, and you didn't then all get uh, well when you come back from deployment you do get leave, um, which you then have to take. Uh, and of course that's what we should have done in September. We should have shut the NHS, given everyone a month's holiday, and then started again in October. That would have been the perfect intervention. And I've heard that before. Actually, I've heard heard um, I. I, I... I can totally understand. It's really interesting um, talking about people keeping people in work whilst unwell and the benefits thereof. And I've certainly seen that in my own practice as a TPD. Yeah, you have to do an assessment. You have to think about it. it you know, if someone really is a risk to patients, etc., and you can't find something else for them to do, obviously you're going to have to do something. But it shouldn't be an automatic policy of just simply saying. Oh, you're obviously having a rough time. Take, you know, I'm going to give you a week's leave. It should and, not be a knee-jerk reaction. And and as a TPD, Susan, I see this the response so often that I actually think we now need to start making it public that you should not be using going leave, compulsory leave, as an intervention. Just like we wouldn't give people compulsory medicines, I think we should be saying this is something that work is protective, especially to doctors, and we're not there of course we're not there just for our own needs but it is protective and out of 15,000 patients that my services looked after only one doctor who's had a mental illness has ever caused harm to a patient or potential harm so even with a, a very mentally distressed patient a doctor the chances of them harming anybody is, is pretty infinitesimal now clearly you're an anesthetist and you have a a duty you know you, you don't want a catatonic doctor you know anesthetist anaesthetizing but there are other things that they can do and I 50% of the the group that I run the, the bereavement group of the doctors that have died have no mental illness so 50% of the doctors that have died have no mental illness and we, we always think that suicide prevention is about identifying mental illness yes if you're lucky of course it raises the the risk but for many there is a work-related trigger and the work may be a complaint or one case the reason the charity was set up of, of a cardiologist who who killed himself having been asked to go on two weeks sick leave because he was overworked well if you're working so hard and then all for nothing all from all to nothing that is a major risk for for suicidality so i think we all need to look at what we're doing and some and a young doctor crying at the end of a shift because they're tired is not a mental illness and and all too often it's perceived as a mental illness mm. And on, on that same point, when we're looking at the results now from from the big study that's ongoing, is what do people do when you know about 25, 30 percent of people are showing significant symptoms of of stress? Well, I'll tell you what they don't do 
is they don't like going to be sent to see external counselling services. So only one to two percent have done that. They don't use helplines. What they like are in-house, things are in-house. And what they also like is time and of time from their supervisor. And of course, that's the most expensive thing you have, which is your time. And that's the best thing that you can deploy. And quite often, people reach for interventions such as EA, EAP programs, external assistance programs, which are very expensive. But the great thing is they don't involve any of your time. They come off your budget, but they don't involve your time. And it's completely the wrong way around. Um, and, and can there's I no put, evidence they work, by the way. As well. Can I put a plea in for the charity Doctors in Distress, which is sole purpose is to reduce the rate of suicide amongst all health professionals through creating what we call groups of belonging, reflective spaces where doctors and other health professionals can come together to talk about the emotional impact of their work, to both give support to each other and gain support from each other. Because once you take something to a peer group, and it doesn't matter what what the, it has to be a facilitated group, so it's, it's not just, for example, a knitting circle, a facilitated group of at least 90 minutes uh, long, nine times a year, it can be a balance group, a Schwartz round, it can be a reflective practice group, a narrative-based practice group, therapy, whatever, but a space, a confidential space will work because it starts to normalise some of the day-to-day -day distresses that we all have, the, the complaints, the patient who shouted at you when you might have shouted at a patient, it normalises it and it stops you fretting and thinking you're alone. So, um, Claire, you mentioned Schwartz rounds and um, involvement. So my experience is that I've tried the personal approach and I've, as a well-being lead at the trust and I've tried um, group sessions, but the involvement has been patchy. So patchy, Susan, you see, I think number one, Schwartz rounds, I think are excellent, but I think doctors shy away from Schwartz round. Uh, doctors are strange beings. And I think putting doctors in a group with others and expecting doctors to be open and honest about their feelings when they are also maybe in charge of those particular healthcare staff or certainly in a, in a more senior position is very difficult. I'm very against mandatory anything, but I think we should have mandatory uh, reflective spaces. So a bit like the Royal College of Psychiatrists, in order to be revalidated, you have to show evidence that you're in a peer, a learning set, essentially. I think every single doctor in the NHS should have 90 minutes, nine times a year, which they have to demonstrate that they've attended, of spaces which are unstructured, facilitated and confidential. And I think that should replace all or virtually all of the nonsense mandatory training that we're all put through that is causing so much suffering. We all laugh at it and do it, but we know, and I started doing mine, I felt physically sick to think that somebody is making me go through this and using what was four hours of my time to do one space when it did nothing but make me feel more mentally distressed. So I think it has to be mandatory, Susan, because if it's not, it won't happen because people won't turn up. It is the only thing that I think is mandatory and I think it should replace all or virtually all of the mandatory training that we do. So that's where you talk about the death you had of one of your patients and under anaesthesia. That's when you talk about the child protection case that I, I missed or the suicide of a patient, not in a sterile online environment where somebody is creating anti-education. I wouldn't quite, I don't think, I don't think you can replace one mandatory thing with another mandatory thing. I think that's you can. A, that's a different issue. Well, you see, if it's not but, mandatory, then people won't go. Well, I think what you have to do is find different, some people really won't like that at all. And there are some people who are quite reasonably not, not into that kind of thing. I think you should have a range of options, but 
going back to what I said about the attitude of your direct line manager, we, Neil and myself and you, Claire, also are very keen that some of these things are built into the normal routine that you have in your job. Yeah, absolutely. And and quite, I think quite a lot of people would dislike being made to go to something they see as shrinkery or counselling or what. And certainly medical students in some medical schools have to do mandatory, in fact, mindfulness. I went to watch one in Leeds once. They absolutely detested it. I'm not talking about man, man, no, but, mandatory but, but mindfulness. No, I'm, I'm talking about spaces where only... you learn together. I, I'm not talking about mandatory psychological intervention, by the way. I'm talking about uh, groups where instead of learning in a sterile online environment, you learn in a real space with real people. I mean, might be on Zoom, by the way, around your experiences, not around, as I said, some some sterile. Because if you, you still then had a death of a patient in, in, in under your under the table when you're anaesthetising them, you've nowhere to take that. If you're very lucky, your TPD might pull you out. So there isn't a space. There isn't a peer support group. If we have a serious child protection issue, so I think going forward and general practice is better at this because we during our training we have vocational training we have half day releases and so do doctors in training but locums don't sas doctors don't consultants don't so i think the move must be towards doing group learning in spaces which is adult-led where you actually have the, the, the physical space or a, a remote space where you do your learning together and in that process support each other so Simon would have been involved in React training and development of React training. Um, do we need that kind of training before participating in those kind of groups? Um, I don't know is the answer to that, actually. Um, I don't think so. I don't think one automatically leads to the other. I, I do think you do need a range of options to suit different personalities. Um, there will, and I mean, I take Claire's point that it's not what you're proposing isn't a psychological intervention, but it will be seen as that. It will be seen as that. Um, and some people will do what we all do at Mandatory and try and get as far away from it as possible. If you're lucky, you can do your email sometimes, and often sometimes you can't, uh, and just sit there, you know, uh, radiating hostility. And um, and that's not going to be very good. Uh, and uh, particularly in, in different, I mean, Actually, psychiatrists don't like that very much either, but that's nothing compared to the contempt that some other specialities would have for that. So I do think it, the more you can build it into the natural life uh, that you have and the natural routines, and, and this is why, you know, the, the, the some of the stuff we're talking about, as say, having having your your line manager knowing a few basic skills is far better, I think than joining a group led by a mental health professional. Again, it doesn't have to be led by a mental health professional. Again, I think that narrative-based practitioners aren't mental health professionals. Ballant are not mental health practitioners. Schwarzrand aren't mental health practitioners. So what I'm I think it's, I think what we're talking about is the nuance. I think we're agreeing that what you need is to build into the working space, into the working week. This isn't something that's optional. It's spaces where you can actually come together to talk about what your work is about. Now, I take times, it's odd, isn't it, that a psychiatrist is moving away from putting the psyche back into the biopsychosocial and a GP is saying it is fundamental to the working life of a doctor because we, we're, we're relational beings, we work with emotions, even a pathologist working with dead people is working with emotions and unless we can accept that and acknowledge that, 
I think we're going to get more and more mental illness in doctors. And what, having seen this now over 15 years, I, I fundamentally believe that unless we recreate the relational aspect, the understanding that doctors do a very tough job, the emotional labor of our work, and to just walk away and walk home with some of the, the what we've been through, I think is is something that I don't want to wish on the next generation of doctors. Of course, it can be friends. Of course, it can be your line manager. But I think there are also spaces, maybe it's because I've, I've been involved in a balance group for 14 years, where you can actually take issues once a month and just talk about it. Talk about that complaint you had. Just talk about it. Talk about, as I said, the child protection issue. And unless you build it in to the working week of every single doctor, it won't happen. And I think snatching a conversation over the coffee is not good enough. It's not, it's not, it's good, but it's not good enough going forward. So going forward, if we're talking about giving, um, having uh, some sort of protected time to, uh, that that is built in, how else can we as individuals, as departments, as organisations, change the culture and reduce the stigma as has happened in the military? Well, the what well the the first thing is that the answer is not going to be mental health awareness, because we've reached a stage now where all the studies show most people are mentally health aware. Um, most people, particularly those who have depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever, they know they have a mental health problem. That's not the issue. It's um, so just simply giving people information about the signs of this and the other. I think now is is probably unnecessary. Uh, um, so then you think about, OK, so the next thing is if you if your first level of, of defense, as it were, your peers and, and your manager have failed, what do you do next? Um, then the barriers are these days not so much stigma as they used to be and in the military quite low, actually. But the next thing is, is this belief that I should be able to handle this myself. That's the biggest reason why people don't uh, come forward. The second one is, what would people think of me? That's that's the next one. And the third is, it won't be confidential. So you need to then develop services that get over those issues, because um, uh, uh, those are the main barriers. But if you think that just increasing awareness in your trust um, or your college or whatever is the answer, people look, get more knowledge, but nothing changes. So that, that's not the answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a mountain to climb. No, I wouldn't put it like that at all. I mean, I don't think it's actually that difficult. And, you know, one of our favourite studies we did in Afghanistan, and we showed that the variation in the mental health in units was partly done by how much fighting they were doing. But it was four times more about the quality of their leadership and cohesion. That was four times more important than the actions of the Taliban. And, uh, and that where you had good leadership and from and I don't mean from the generals or Simon Stevens or even you and me and you uh, from again the person you reported to you then saw a big change in the mental health of the unit so that's not difficult to achieve that isn't difficult to achieve um, and, and that's what I would be suggesting strongly and then when that fails you need to have uh, accessible uh, uh, services but again the people who do the best and the most popular are where you've already got, for example, a psychologist in an ITU 
or I did psychiatry and a renal unit for years, where you were already seeing patients alongside the rest of the team, then they were the person, you were the person they wanted to occasionally talk to about themselves mm -hmm. because they knew you. They knew you before and they knew you after. And mm -hmm. that is really you were part important. of that team, weren't you? Exactly. So yeah. removing IAPs and sending them, putting them off site, the whole of the IAPs improving access to psychological treatment and removing them off site, so distance away from from primary care yeah, is probably it, the wrong way forward. Well, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but when they're on site, where they've got the same lockers and they share the same mm -hmm. coffee room, that's great. And where you are referring them patients, where they're part of the team, um, that's the, you know the liaison model, and IAPS is doing that now as well in 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 certain areas, um, and is working well. Can I just say because I know we're coming. You up don't to want to see a stranger, is what I'm saying. Can I just say something about anaesthetist? Uh, anaesthetist, I have to say, one of the reasons we might have seen a slight reduction in anaesthetist, we've also seen a reduction in the uh, number of people presenting with addiction problems. And we know that anaesthetists of all the specialties have the highest rate of problems with drugs in particular. And it may well be that because of COVID, because many people, because the teams are much bigger, anaesthetists are doing different jobs, they're working in ITU rather than maybe anaesthetizing patients in, in surgery, might have less access to drugs or it might be easier to mask because we're wearing, especially anaesthetists in ITU, wearing full body PPE, so to speak. The same goes for alcohol. Uh, it's easier to mask it when you work remotely. It's easier to mask it because we're moving around. So I just want to say to any anaesthetist listening to this, our service, practitionerhealth.nhs.uk, is confidential. You can approach us, and even if you're in what you might think of as a bad way, we can help. We can help make things better. So I don't want anaesthetists to be suffering in silence because sometimes the first time we know about an anaesthetist distress is after a, 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 a drug overdose or sadly a, a suicide. So please, if you're suffering, please contact our service. As I said, it's confidential. We have a memorandum of understanding with the General Medical Council, uh, which means we have really much, much bigger uh, and much more leeway in terms of keeping things confidential. So please come and, and approach us. And um, thank you so much for bringing that up about anaesthetists and addiction, because yes, they are well known to um, have a much greater incidence. And I'm really sad to say, but I think we've nearly reached the end and I've learned a huge amount and it's been wonderful. Um, but I would like to ask you, going forward with your summer staycation, what book would you like to take with you? Simon, you take. <laughs> um, I'm reading a history of the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> and I just think that's what I'm taking with me as soon as right. I can. I, I'm going to be very narcissistic. <laughs> I'm writing my autobiography. Oh, God. So I will take my laptop <laughs> and I will continue to write my autobiography, which hopefully will be my book that comes out hopefully in November, December, if I can find a publisher. And uh, then hopefully other people can read it. Well, I think that both of them would be most valuable and they certainly will keep you busy. Thank you so much, Sue. And thank you. It's been a, a, both an honour and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, 
If you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our program of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.